Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the cardio nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as cardio nerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing cardio nerds colleagues. Cardio Nerds, we are back with another amazing case. This time, we are so excited to be joined by colleagues and fellows from the University of Michigan Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. I'd like to welcome to the show Drs. Amrish Deshmukh, Jessica Guidi, and Apu Chakraborty. Guys, welcome to the show. Really excited to learn from you today. Tell the audience who you are. Hi, I'm Amrish. I'm one of the third-year fellows. Before coming to Michigan, I was at residency at University of Chicago and did med school at Case Western. Next year, I'm planning on going into EP. Hey, guys. I'm Jess Guidi. I'm one of the third-year fellows at the University of Michigan. I'm originally from the Boston area and then went to medical school and residency at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I'm planning on doing advanced heart failure next year. Hi, everyone. My name is Apu. I'm a Michigander born and raised, and I did both medical school residency here at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I was very lucky to stay on as a fellow at the program where I'm a current second year, and I plan on going into electrophysiology as well. Wow. Amrish, Jessica, Apu, welcome, welcome to the show. We are so excited to be here with you guys today in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This is a real treat for me. I have never personally been yet, but Paint us a picture of what the city looks like and take us to your favorite chill spot so we can have an amazing conversation in the world of cardiology. Yeah, I'm originally from the East Coast and I had never been to the Midwest before I came here. But Ann Arbor is a great little town. It's a college town. There's a lot of stuff to do, particularly if you like to get outside and get into nature. I think there's also a ton of good restaurants and breweries around here. One of my favorite spots is a craft brewery called Holmes Brewery that came to Ann Arbor a few years ago. And they just have amazing Korean food, great IPAs, and really great sour beers. So we try to do a few events there with our co-fellows, obviously a little bit challenging with COVID, but it's a really fun spot in the city. 
Jessica, I love that. And you know, when I was applying for residency, my wife and I were couples matching. And at the time, we were living far away from one another, me in San Diego and her in Philly. And so we used the interview season to essentially travel together. And I just remember how much we enjoyed spending a couple of days in Ann Arbor. It was just such a beautiful town with a college feel. We went to the farmer's market and had uh, had coffee in this like really quaint little coffee shop. Uh, so I have terrific memories and I'm excited to hang out with you guys at this brewery. So let's do what we love doing when we are hanging out in breweries and dive into, as Dan says, the world of cardiology. You guys have a case? Yeah, I have a very interesting case here and I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this challenging case. So I have here Mr. J. This is a 60-year-old male presenting for chest pain. His past medical history is most significant for obesity with a body mass index of about 32 kilograms per meter squared. He presented to the emergency department. He described substernal chest pressure radiating to his bilateral arms with associated dyspnea with minimal exertion. Interestingly, the chest pain actually started about five days prior to his presentation at the hospital, and he had not had any sort of chest discomfort in the past. His symptoms were severe enough to cause him to call out of his job as a construction worker. However, due to concern of contracting COVID-19 and with the ongoing pandemic, he did not seek immediate medical care. Over the past several days, the chest pain was increasing in frequency and severity and was now becoming both more persistent and associated with lightheadedness, so he decided to present to the emergency department. His past medical history is most significant for gastroesophageal reflux disease and the aforementioned obesity. His surgical history is actually non-contributed to the relevant situation at hand. His medications and allergies are both non-significant as well. From a family history perspective, he does not have any family history of early coronary artery disease, although his mother had some risk factors with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Socially, he drinks about three alcoholic beverages a week and does not use any form of tobacco or recreational drugs. So Amrish and Jess, what are you thinking right now? So what I'm hearing you telling me is that we have a gentleman in his 60s with not a lot of past medical history who's presenting with five days of chest pain that is sort of escalating and has some features concerning for an acute coronary syndrome. That would be my strongest suspicion. But a gentleman like this presenting to the ED, you'd still consider all of the usual causes of chest pain in that group. Absolutely. I think we were on the same page as well. And I think some data can help clarify that differential. On exam, his vital signs were remarkable for a temperature of 36.4 degrees centigrade, a blood pressure of 96 over 56 millimeters of mercury. His heart rate was 137 beats per minute, and his respiratory rate was 22 per minute. He was saturating well at 94% on room air. In general, he was ill-appearing and acutely distressed. His cardiovascular exam was remarkable for a tachycardic regular rhythm with a normal first and second heart sound, but a 3 out of 6 mid-systolic murmur loudest at the left sternal border. His jugular venous pressure was elevated to about 10 centimeters of water. From a pulmonary perspective, he was tachypnic, speaking in shortened sentences, and he had bivasal rails in the mid-lung fields bilaterally. His abdomen was soft, and his extremities, importantly, were cool to touch, although his distal pulses were 1+. plus. From a neurologic perspective, he was not oriented and was quite altered on exam, although the rest of his neurologic exam was non-focal. You know, Apu, all the time, we've got patients who show up to the ED or show up to the floor, and we're catching up on something else. You know, we're just catching up with seeing another patient or finishing up on notes or orders. You know, of course, we spend so much more time on the EMR now than with our patients, but this is a situation where just with the vital signs, the nurse may page you and say, look, something is wrong. This is a situation where you run to the bedside and quickly start acquiring data because you can't sit on this. He's hypotensive and tachycardic and tachypnic. And so, you know, our red flags are up, but I'm curious, how did you put together this physical exam? So based on the exam that 
Apu is giving us. I'm definitely worried about this patient. Sounds like he appears acutely ill. He's tachycardic and has soft blood pressures. He has evidence of poor end organ perfusion with cool extremities and poor mentation. At this point, I think our differential is pretty broad. Obviously, from a cardiac perspective, we're worried about his chest pain. And as Amrish said, I think ACS would be high on our differential. However, we need to think about other things that might be causing his clinical syndrome. With this tachycardia and compromised oxygen saturation, you'd definitely be worried about PE in a patient like this. And I also think that this patient was presenting during the height of the COVID pandemic. And we also need to definitely consider that in our differential as well. Yeah, these are amazing points. And, you know, when it comes to this patient's tempo of that five days of symptoms, obviously we are considering all these things as we're talking about. The differential has to be broad because we cannot afford to miss anything in a patient that's hemodynamically unstable. But, you know, there's chest pain who comes in and there's chest pain with hemodynamic consequences. And we get really, really concerned about pump failure, valve failure, coronary failure, you know, different failures of the heart that are leading to this hemodynamic compromise with a patient who's cool to the touch. And then, you know, that this exam is fantastic, basically interrogating the heart and really the cardiovascular system to look for this kind of break in the system. And pinpointing a murmur obviously makes us more concerned, although we do know that there are certain structural complications of chest pain from MI, such as acute mitral valve regurgitation that may actually not present with a murmur because of equalization of pressures, as we've focused on a bunch of times already during the series. But definitely, definitely interested to hear what happens next, because we really want some good data to help point us in the right direction to take care of this critically ill patient. Absolutely. And, you know, everyone was moving quickly. And the next set of data as it came in during our simultaneous evaluation was some of his laboratory data. From that perspective, his complete blood count showed a low-grade leukocytosis at 12.3, his hemoglobin was 16.2, and his platelets were 182. His chemistry panel was remarkable for a BUN of 19 and a creatinine of 1.5, as well as mildly elevated LFTs with an AST of 76, an ALT of 59, and an alkaline phosphatase of 87, and a total bilirubin of 0.9. Perhaps most pertinent to narrowing our differential was that his high-sensitivity troponin was 2,373, with the upper limit of normal NRSA being 19, and it was quickly increasing to 5,756. His lactate, going to our cool extremities and discussion on perfusion, was 3.9. So, obviously an extremely ill patient. Jess and Amrish, how are you approaching this patient now with the helpful additions of these labs? So, Pooh, I think that these labs confirm a lot of the things we learned on the exam. So the LFT abnormalities, the renal failure, the lactate all sort of point to his shock. And then we confirm our suspicions about the chest pain involving acute myocardial injury with the high-sensitivity troponin being elevated and then also having a very significant delta for our assay. Yeah, that was a great breakdown. And, you know, I love that you said acute myocardial injury and not infarction, because at this point, we still don't know exactly what's going on. And as you said, we were getting hyper acutely aware and concerned about this patient that is hypotensive and tachycardic. And there's evidence of organ malperfusion with an elevated lactate and elevated indices of the kidneys and the liver. And so we're very worried about this patient. And we know that there is evidence of cardiac injury. And so we talked a lot about this within the context of COVID and troponin elevation has come about to become a very important and potent marker of morbidity and mortality in patients with COVID illness. Now, we don't know that that's what's going on here, but regardless, within that framework of troponin elevation, it can be either non-ischemic injury or ischemic injury. And ischemic injury could be any variety 
of coronary abnormalities like acute coronary syndromes from plaque rupture. And we talked about during the series, we have great examples of spontaneous coronary artery dissection, also vasospasm, anomalous coronary anatomy. We've had coronary vasculitis. And so just even across this series, we've seen so many different causes of primary coronary failure causing ischemia. And then there's also this sort of type 2 MI within the ischemic umbrella, where it's a supply-demand mismatch. And we've had examples there of severe aortic regurgitation causing an elevated LVEDP and decreased coronary perfusion. And in the situation, we know the patient is already in shock for whatever reason. And so you can imagine a supply-demand mismatch that has nothing to do with a coronary anatomy. So on the one hand, you have ischemic etiologies, either primary coronary-related or supply-demand mismatch-related. And on the other hand, you have non-ischemic etiologies. And so for a patient like this, you know, he's not febrile, but he has a white blood cell count that's 12 we can think about an inflammatory myocardial injury being myocarditis with an inflammatory infiltrate. And we also learned that DSP cardiomyopathy, which is the left dominant arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, classically presents with acute episodes of myocardial injury with chest pain, a rise and fall of troponin, and potentially evidence of inflammation on FEG PET, which is just a natural history of the genetic cardiomyopathy that has nothing to do with coronary failure either. And so right now, I think what we know is that this patient is probably in cardiogenic shock or a cardiogenic low-flow state, there is substantial myocardial injury with a troponin that is at least a couple orders of magnitude above the upper reference range. And so whatever the cause of the troponin elevation, we know that troponin elevation is associated with badness. And so not only is the patient suffering, we know that already by virtue of the troponin elevation, the prognosis is already poor unless we act fast. So we've got to act fast. I'm so glad the patient is here with our University of Michigan cardio nerds. I'm excited to see how you guys move fast to take care of this patient further and delineate what's going on. Absolutely, Amit. And as you pointed out, everyone's moving fast. We have a wonderful team in the emergency room obtaining a lot of data at once. And one additional piece that we have yet to discuss is this electrocardiogram, which I can bring up next. Jess, do you want to walk us through it? Sure. I think this really helps clarify things. As we were talking about, there's quite a broad differential, particularly for his myocardial injury. Looking at this 12-lead EKG, I see that he has sinus tachycardia at a rate that's slightly less than 150 beats per minute. It's an incomplete right bundle branch block, and I don't know if that's new or old, and a few PVCs present. But most notably, I see prominent ST elevations in the inferior leads, particularly in leads 3 and AVF, as well as early R waves and ST depressions in the anterior leads. And this would all be concerning given his presenting symptoms of substernal chest pressure for a inferior and posterior STEMI. Absolutely, Jess. And we're going to have to move fast to the cath lab. Interestingly, when we look at this EKG, we can see that his inferior ST elevations are obvious, but lead three has a greater ST elevation than two. And there are actually concomitant depressions, as you point out, in both one and AVL that are greater than one millimeter. And that collection of findings on EKG, while certainly obvious for an inferior ST elevation MI, are also suggestive of a right coronary etiology. And in particular, potentially the absence of ST elevation in, in AVR, and we don't have right-sided leads, so we can't comment fully, suggestive of probably a mid-RCA occlusion. But let's see what we find when we head to the left heart cath. Yeah, Jessica, Apu, I have to say that was a brilliant description of this ECG. And I'm not going to add anything but to emphasize that, folks, pull over after you finish driving or put down that tomato in the grocery shop. This is a great ECG to imprint in your mind from pattern recognition of a inferior and posterior MI. Definitely want to check this out and appreciate this very, very concerning ECG. I guess now it's time to take the patient to the table of the truth. 
So we're looking at the films from the cath lab, and what we see is an occluded mid-RCA. You see some faint left-to-right collaterals. And what we heard from the interventional folks was that this was a lesion that was difficult to cross. They felt like it was organized thrombus, but eventually they were able to reestablish flow and place a drug-eluting stent with Timmy 3 flow after the procedure. That's awesome, Amrish. And you're absolutely right. We get the stents in, everything's gone, but something's wrong. The patient's still becoming hypotensive, and he's now requiring vasopressors. Amrish, what are you thinking at this point with a fixed lesion but worsening clinical shock? So I think this is a patient who we started out very worried about, and now that the clinical scenario is clear, it's somebody that I'm even more worried about, namely somebody with a RCA myocardial infarction who's having cardiogenic shock even after we've had percutaneous intervention, we know that the mortality of these patients is up to 50%. With someone who's sort of still worsening after revascularization, there's a few specific things I would be worried about. Pump failure, including possible RV infarction or a mechanical complication stemming from his late presentation. We know that he's had symptoms for five days. Specifically with his coronary lesion, I'd be worried about a ventricular septal defect or possibly ischemic posterior medial papillary muscle dysfunction with acute mitral regurgitation. I think we're in the, still in the cath lab right now, but if this patient was back upstairs in the CCU, the other things you'd consider would be an access site complication with bleeding. And we don't see it on EKG, but arrhythmia related to his RCA infarct. Amrish, I'm so glad you brought up this differential diagnosis. It's so critical to be thinking broadly when you have a patient on the cath table in a situation like this. It's almost easy and could be lazy to say, well, there's a STEMI that came in and we fixed the STEMI and now we're good to go. And I know that they're not hemodynamically doing well, but I expect that with this particular lesion and I expect that. And I think this is all going to be coronary failure. And then, you know, basically you let the patient go without even assessing the ventricle, potentially without getting an echo or some sort of V-gram to delineate what's going on with the ventricle. But having this differential makes it like the obvious next steps to follow up on it. And you mentioned RV failure, and I see in this scary angiographic image here with this mid-RCA lesion that you do have these acute marginals that are patent, but really important to have RV failure on the differential. And again, given that this is potentially a late presentation with what we saw on the ECG with Q waves in both the inferior leads and in the posterior leads, this is a person that is set up for a mechanical complication, which we really cannot delay a diagnosis on. So kudos to the team for getting him this far. And I'm really excited to hear what happened next in the evaluation of this patient. You guys are rock stars and everything you're saying, I'm learning so much. And I think the cath lab team was thinking exactly as you are. First, they had to stabilize the patient. So in addition to vasopressor support, they placed an intraortic balloon pump. And in the meantime, they sought some of the diagnostic clarity to narrow that differential both of you outlined so well. They began with a PA catheter, and in this situation, the following numbers are both on balloon pump support as well as vasopressors, including norepinephrine. Our patient had a right atrial pressure of 26, a right ventricular pressure of 63 over 29, with an end diastolic pressure of 31 millimeters of mercury. His PA pressure was 55 over 36, with a mean of 44 millimeters of mercury, and his pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 29 millimeters of mercury. His cardiac index and output on that support by thermodilution were 5 liters per minute and 2.2 liters per minute per meter squared, respectively. His pulmonary vascular resistance was 1.33 Woods units, and his SVR was 467. Obviously very concerning. Jess, what do you think of those PA cath numbers? 
these hemodynamics are definitely worrisome. He has extremely high right-sided pressures, in particular RA pressure of 26 compared to a normal value of less than 10. This is certainly concerning for some kind of right heart failure. In addition, I'm definitely worried about his cardiac index of only 2.2. That's lower than the normal range. And despite support with an intraortic balloon pump and norepinephrine, along with his impaired end organ perfusion, this is all consistent with considerable cardiogenic shock. Given his presenting hemodynamics in the setting of an inferior STEMI, I think we're still worried about possibly an RV infarct. But like Dan was saying, this patient had a mid-occlusion of the RCA, and typically patients with RV infarct have proximal RCA occlusion. So I think we have to keep our differential wide about what could potentially be causing this patient's particularly high right-sided filling pressures. Yeah, Jessica, that's absolutely right. You know, and just stepping back, this patient has elevated right-sided filling pressures. This patient has elevated left-sided filling pressures and overall a low cardiac output or a low flow. In addition to that, you know, we have a couple of indices that the right side particularly is not functioning well. The pulmonary artery pulsatility index or the PAPI is quite low. His PA pulse pressure is just about 20 and his RA pressure is 26. And so his PA pulse pressure divided by his RA pressure gives us a number that's actually less than one. So the RV is very much suffering. And we can also look at his RA to wedge pressure ratio, which is almost one in the setting also. And so the fact that his RA to wedge pressure is nearly one and his PAPI is less than one, we know that you know both sides are experiencing failure given elevated biventricular filling pressures, but his RV is functioning quite poorly. And this will have implications on, one, what your differential diagnosis is. But, you know, as you sort that out, it'll also have implications on how you approach supporting this patient. You know, RV failure in particular is very fluid dependent, but then too much fluid can also cause interventricular dependence and bowing of the RV into the LV and compromising LV output. So managing the preload becomes extremely important and very patient dependent. Inotropic support becomes very relevant. They tolerate tachyarrhythmias very poorly. And when you think about uh, possible need for mechanical circulatory support, you'll probably need biventricular support, just given the fact that both sides are failing. You know, I didn't expect there to be RV failure. And so these right heart cath pressures have schooled me because, you know, they're letting me know, Dan, relax. I know that you think that this is a mid-coronary occlusion, and I think that you can isolate this to an LV problem, but this is not what the right heart cath is showing. And so, you know, had I had this patient, I would have been like, wow, there's something that's going on, a stressor, not only on the LV as predicted from the coronary aspect, but we are seeing biventricular failure here. And so it would open my differential diagnosis to think even more broadly and not just say this is a coronary failure, but I think this is coronary failure inducing pump failure for sure on the LV side, but there's also pump failure on the RV side. And is that related to the original infarct or is there something else that's going on? I definitely would have my spidey senses super elevated. Dan, I love you saying that. And, you know, like it's just cardiology is so, you know, we learn something from every patient. It can be so humbling. And I actually am remembering the case from our friends at Houston Methodist who had the case of RV failure post-PCI because they essentially lost perfusion to uh, large acute marginals after the coronary intervention itself. And so what the pre-intervention angiogram versus the post-intervention angiogram are also important to look at. We, we learn so much from every individual case. What did you guys do next? Absolutely, guys. Thanks for that great summary of those uh, complicated hemodynamic. This patient now is on vasopressor support, has an intraortic balloon pump, which is not only augmenting his cardiac output, but improving coronary perfusion pressures and providing some afterload relief. But interestingly, during that shunt run, our PA sat was about 85%, was a little bit high. 
that prompted a full shunt run that I can outline now. His arterial saturation was 97%. His superior vena cava saturation was 71%. His right atrial pressure was 72%. His right ventricular saturation was 62%. And then his pulmonary artery saturation jumped up to 85%. So with those oximetry numbers, what are you thinking, Amrish? So I think you'll see different numbers about what is a step up in oxygenation, but this is sort of very obviously an abnormally high PA saturation, and you start out with a relatively okay RV saturation. So you know that there's a shunt um, from the left to the right in between those two. In the clinical context that we have right here, I think you'd be worried about a VSD as a result of his MI. Absolutely. And I think the cath lab operators were thinking the same. And their next step was to put in a pigtail and perform an LV angiogram, which is shown in the relevant materials as well. Jess, what do you think of this LV-gram? So looking at this LV-gram, we can see that the patient has a PA catheter in place and a pigtail catheter in his LV. And in this LAO shot, we see that there's flow first into the LV but then notably, we see some contrasts coming over into the RV as well. So looking at this LV gram, I think we can clinch our diagnosis of a interventricular septal rupture in this patient who's presenting with five days of chest pain and found to have an inferior and posterior MI. Yeah, folks, you have to see this ventriculogram. I mean, there's so much information that you could extract out of this. Number one is the patient is incredibly tachycardic. Number two is you could see the balloon pump trying to match that level of tachycardia. Three is you see this well-placed pigtail in this LAO picture. And in the LAO picture, the right ventricle and the left ventricle are side by side. And so you could see the contrast fill the LV and also fill the RV. Yeah, these images are very impressive to look at. And, you know, you definitely see the intraortic balloon pump banging away, trying to help temporize this patient. And, you know, if the pathology here was solely biventricular pump failure, it probably wouldn't have been that effective. But it's very well attuned to manage the pathology of this patient. So it's a great choice of mechanical circulatory support. So if you think about intraortic balloon, what it's doing is counter pulsation and decreasing the afterload, increasing coronary perfusion. And so in general, I think the three broad indications for intraortic balloon pump are to assist a failing LV pump, just to improve cardiac output. Number two is to improve coronary perfusion because you increase aortic pressures when the balloon pump is expanding. And then three, to decrease afterload and really help blood find its way in the right direction. And so it's particularly useful for these mechanical complications of things like papillary muscle rupture with severe mitral regurgitation or ventricular septal rupture because it helps decrease the afterload and helps blood find its way through the aortic valve rather than back into the lungs through the MR or into the RV through the VSR. So this is a great choice and a very good example of the value of intraortic balloon pump in this context. Now that we have this diagnosis, uh, clearly the patient is failing, you know, hemodynamically and end organ function is getting worse. What are the next steps here? Because we're clearly in a hairy situation. We're definitely not out of the woods. We're definitely in the thick of things right now. Absolutely, guys. That was a wonderful, wonderful summary of a complicated case. I think the ventriculogram absolutely settles the diagnosis, but to confirm it with another view and give some more clarification on cardiac anatomy, at that point, we chose to pursue a echocardiogram, which the images are next. Amrish, do you want to walk us through this echo briefly? Sure. So here, what we're looking at is sort of a deep transgastric view from a transesophageal echocardiogram, where on the right side of the screen, you see the LV, the left side of the screen, you see the RV, and then with color flow, and even without it, you see that there's 
an abnormal connection towards the basal septum with flow going across. This is sort of what we would expect for an inferior MI where the basal inferior septum is involved. When you get these with LED infarcts, it's typically the apical septum that has a, a VSD. You know, Amrish, you're making a, a great distinction between different causes of VSRs from different infarct-related arteries. In the literature, the LED and the RCA are much more commonly involved, or the culprits, as opposed to the circumflex artery. And it's roughly half-half between the RCA and the LED. But, you know, if I were to choose a VSR for myself, I'd probably choose an anterior MI, because the anterior MI VSRs tend to be more apical. They tend to be simpler, essentially through and through at the same level, and generally easier to fix. Whereas inferior MIs tend to cause VSRs that, or ventricular septal ruptures that are more complicated, take a serpiginous route, potentially involving the free wall, just more difficult to repair, be more friable, and overall probably a worse course. This distinction is very important. And in this patient, we have an inferior MI presenting as a VSR. And so, you know, looking ahead towards management and approach, it's probably going to be more complicated. Absolutely. And looking at what happened to the patient next, transferred to our cardiac intensive care unit with an intraatric balloon pump support and vasopressor support with norepinephrine. Unfortunately, likely due to biventricular failure, he had progressive cardiogenic shock with worsening acute liver injury as well as acute kidney injury. Very early into that hospital course in the cardiac intensive care unit, mere hours, the decision was made to place that patient on veno-arterial extracorporeal membranous oxygenation, or VA ECMO, as a bridge to surgical repair. Jess, do you want to talk about through the decision to place the patient on VA ECMO and delay surgical repair? Yeah, and these patients who have VSR, really the only potential salvage therapy for them is to get a surgical repair of the septal rupture. After a acute MI, the myocardium is necrotic and soft, which can make suturing through the tissue pretty much impossible. So in these patients, ideally, you want to give them a little bit of time to cool off and let the myocardium form some collagen deposits and stiffen so that the surgeon can actually do his or her work and repair the defect effectively. So in the case of this patient, I think that we were trying to buy as much time as we possibly could with mechanical support. And it makes sense that since the patient was continuing to fail on uh, intraortic balloon pump to go to something like ECMO to try to buy him a little bit more time to let his myocardium heal prior to definitive surgical repair of his VSR. Yeah, Jess, very well put. And I, I think these patients are some of the most challenging and mechanical complications to handle, as Dan mentioned, with inferior posterior MI resulting in the ventricular septal rupture. Obviously, the literature is fraught with some complication and is limited to mostly case series and cohort reports. But it seems like delaying surgery improves overall outcomes. However, there's obviously a survivorship bias in the people who survive to eventually go to the operating room after the delay. So it's difficult to interpret what to do. But from a surgical perspective, absolutely, the necrotic tissue is difficult to sew in. So the patient was stabilized on venoarterial ECMO. And then, unfortunately, that's obviously not a bridge forever, and he did develop some ECMO-related complications, which included significant hemolysis as well as acute renal failure requiring the initiation of continuous renal replacement therapy. He was eventually taken to the operating room on hospital day seven, and intraoperatively, a large six-by-six-centimeter ventricular septal rupture was found, just as you said, Amrish, in the posterobasal aspect of the symptom. The infarcted tissue was removed, and a large bovine pericardial patch was used to repair the defect. However, due to the size of the defect, there was actually very little viable septal remaining, and the patch had to be sewn directly into the LV and RV walls. At the same time, the patient was decannulated from ECMO. 
although he had a prolonged hospital course, he was eventually discharged to a rehabilitation facility on hospital day 45. And just to kind of give us some closure to this, a repeat echocardiogram sometime after the repair showed ongoing moderate biventricular dysfunction now that his afterload was higher with the VSD partially repaired, but there was a residual ventricular septal defect that was approximately one centimeter in diameter. You know, I know that HIPAA compliance and maintaining patient privacy is really important, but by any chance, was your patient's name Lazarus? No. Okay, because, you know, I think it's just so important to recognize that this patient was essentially revived from, you know, from almost a point of no return. VSRs carry an incredibly high morbidity and mortality, and surgical repair for VSR carries the highest of any cardiothoracic surgical procedure from the STS data. Now, even within that rubric, patients who go into VSR surgery with a background of cardiogenic shock have a mortality that's in the above 80 to, to 90% range. So, I mean, it's just incredible that this patient survived this acute encounter. And it's really complicated because we don't know when the best timing for surgery is, right? I mean, if the patient is there and crashing, are you going to be able to wait? You know, probably not that long. But at the same time, as you said, we know that waiting longer may help improve two things. One, the tissue suitability for repair and the ability to differentiate that tissue from healthy tissue just to make sure that your repair has greater longevity, right? And so patients who may not be surgical candidates or who may not have anatomy that is suitable for repair, you know, we can always consider transcatheter septal closures using Amplaster device and other devices potentially. You know, with this patient, it probably wouldn't have been an option because there just wasn't enough septum left. And especially inferior MIs typically don't have enough of a septal rim to land those devices. So this another reason why inferior MIs leading to VSRs are more complicated. And then of course, you know, these patients, we can think about advanced heart failure therapy options had this patient not had such a good sort of post-op surgical course, LVAD wouldn't be an option. It would be a total artificial heart or a transplant evaluation. But, you know, engaging with palliative care earlier on and uh, exploring, you know, patients' values and goals of care are so important just because the road to recovery is very challenging at best. So how did this patient do on follow-up? Yeah, he's doing um, better. Uh, he's still undergoing cardiac rehab, but he is unfortunately still not being able to return to work. Well, that's just amazing. I think the fact that he's still breathing and spending time with his family and recovering is remarkable in and of itself. Just kind of reflecting on how this developed originally, this patient was having pain for five days. I think this is also a little public awareness yeah, issue. You know, if you're having uh, chest pain or cardiac symptoms, you know, we shouldn't delay. But was there a reason that the patient delayed seeking care in the beginning? Was, there, was it an access issue or a health literacy issue? So I think the patient was concerned about their symptoms, but they were more concerned about coming to the hospital. This was during the height of the coronavirus pandemic for our institution. And so they were more concerned about exposing themselves and sort of delayed their presentation as a result of that. We sort of know from studies throughout the world now that the incidence of patients presenting with acute myocardial infarctions has declined. And then there's reports from institutions showing that time from symptom onset to first medical contact has even quadrupled compared to historical controls. So I think that this patient's experience is not unique throughout the world during this time. You know, not at all. And it's such an important thing to highlight. Earlier in the COVID pandemic, as we were learning about it, we did some high-profile interviews. We actually had a conversation with Professor Gianluca Pantone from Lombardia in Milan, Italy, who said, look, you know, in, in February, we noticed that there was a decline in the STEMI presentations. And he actually practices in one of the main uh, cardiac hospitals in the University of Milan. 
And they thought, is there something protective? You know, but didn't quite make sense. But then uh, after a few weeks, they started seeing a rise of mechanical complications. And he said, this is very bizarre for us because Lombardia is a very high resource area. And so we have very good rates of primary revascularization. And the, the upsurge of mechanical complications was predominantly in their minds due to patients just like yours, not seeking care earlier on because of fear of being exposed. And, you know, I myself had a patient who essentially came in with acute shortness of breath. He had an episode of exertional chest pain that was pretty concerning nine days prior and decided not to come in for the same reason. And he was found to have a VSR with a QPQS or a pulmonary cardiac output over systemic cardiac output of above four. Thankfully, also did well postoperatively after a surgical repair. But it's such a reflection on the times. And for all of the listeners in the audience, a big part of what we do is advocacy and patient education. You know, I think counseling our patients whenever possible, even when they come into clinic, is so important that, look, if you have symptoms, give us a call. Let us take care of you. Don't go unnoticed. Yeah, Amit, that's a really great point. And I was kind of reflecting on this like I, idea of patients not coming in with chest pain. And, you know, it's something that I have talked to a lot of patients about, especially ones that I've met along the way that have also come in as later presentations. And we have to remember that as young cardio nerds, you know, we're in the era where we think everybody knows chest pain equals heart attack equals get me to the hospital immediately for an evaluation. But we have to remember that there was a lot of PR and publicity that was going on over the decades before we came around in the cardiology world where there was a lot of patient education that if you have chest pain, you got to seek medical attention. Similarly for stroke, if you have a neurological symptom, you have to seek medical attention. But we have to remember that like chest pain, a lot of times while we have patients that come with severe, severe chest pain, where it's obvious that they had to come to the hospital right away. A lot of chest pain that, you know, is from the MI because of the way that MI presents is it's not chest pain that is intrinsically harsh enough to make sure this patient comes into the ER, but it's more of that association. They know, hey, I have chest pain and I also know that heart attacks cause chest pain and I know that that's serious. So I should come into the emergency room. But when you have a conflicting worry about coming into the emergency room because of COVID and you don't know what's going on, that is enough to dissuade people from taking their initial gut feelings of coming into the ER and saying, well, I'll wait it out. It's off and on. It's getting a little bit better. Let me try this. Let me try that. And so part of what we're doing now is we are educating people once again and reminding them that, hey, if you have chest pain and it feels wrong to you, you should get some medical attention immediately. And that may be coming into the emergency room right away or calling your PCP to discuss it, but it's de definitely something you don't want to ignore, even though we're in the era of COVID. And we also have to remind our patients that as the pandemic has evolved, hospitals have adapted to learn how to triage and put patients in the appropriate places if they are COVID positive and to deal with patients who do have COVID and also deal with patients who don't have COVID. So right now, the hospital is a different place than they were back in March, at least where I'm working and where a lot of other cardio nerds are working right now. Yeah, these are all great points and, and so important for the work that we do in multiple dimensions. Speaking of multiple dimensions and the incredible work we're doing, this patient survived because of your care. I mean, this is definitely a life saved. So I'd love to hear at this point what you guys love about cardiology. Why did you guys decide to pursue cardiology? And What's it been like training at the University of Michigan? What makes your hearts flutter about your program? I think I really came to cardiology because like a lot of medical care, it's an incredible team sport. 
But I think something about cardiology specifically, you know, working with all of the subspecialists, working with cardiac surgery, walking with all the perfusionists, it's an incredibly team-driven profession. And I have just felt incredibly lucky to be at the University of Michigan where I have access to a lot of world-renowned specialists, but people who I can just text and ask whether it's a clinical question, a personal question, a professional question. And there's a lot of support and intergroup discussion and communication. And that's been really pleasurable and makes my heart flutter. I totally agree, Apu. I think that cardiology and definitely my experience here at the University of Michigan is definitely a multidisciplinary field. And I think this patient definitely illustrates that. We had a patient who was incredibly sick, had acute recognition of his syndrome in our ED, obviously had interaction with our interventional cardiologists and then our cardiac surgeons. This is definitely a place that highlights camaraderie and respect between all the different fields that might interact with a patient like this. One thing that we have at the University of Michigan that I think is unique is a shock team. And so for patients who are in cardiogenic shock, such as this patient, we have a system in place to have a formalized discussion between our ICU doctors, our interventionalists, our cardiac surgeons, advanced heart failure specialists, and the fellows are definitely involved in that as well. And it helps for these complicated patients figure out what makes most sense for them, even if it involves kind of different parts of our group. I'll piggyback off of what Jess just said and say that the fellowship is really a place that puts you in the driver's seat as well. So for that shock team call, it's the fellow in the CCU, usually a first-year fellow who rounds up all the parties and starts off the discussion. And so you really feel like you're involved and sort of driving the patient's care. And that makes fellowship so much more rewarding. Team, this was an amazing treat. The brews are great. I have to admit, it's like we started recording this at like 10 in the morning, but we are drinking responsibly. It was so nice to meet you guys in Ann Arbor and talk about this really challenging case and learn so much along the way. I personally have learned so much from all of your teaching pearls, presentation styles, and also I've learned a lot from Amit, my cardio nerd. He amazes me at every turn of the way. So thanks guys for making art. That's been a two-way road, my friend. Thanks, man. But definitely, this is such a great discussion. And I'm really excited to hear the editorials from our faculty experts for the eCPR segments. But thanks again, guys. This was the highlight of our week. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much. I listen to the podcast and I absolutely love it. So it's been great to participate. And now for the eCPR discussion with Dr. Devraj Sukal and Dr. Kim Eagle. Dr. Sukal is one of our interventional cardiologists and was recently one of our interventional and general fellows. And Dr. Kim Eagle is the editor of ACC.org, and you've probably seen the Eagle Eyes podcast, and he's one of the directors of our cardiovascular center. I'm here with Dr. Eagle. I'm Devraj Sukal. I'm one of the interventional cardiologists here at the University of Michigan. Dr. Eagle, of course, needs no introduction, but I'll let him introduce himself. I'm Kim Eagle, and I'm one of the Cardiovascular Center Directors here at the University of Michigan, and we're delighted to be talking to you today about this very interesting patient. Fantastic. First off, I think on behalf of both of us, we'd really like to thank you all at CardioNerds for inviting us to speak about this case and tell you a little bit about the University of Michigan Fellowship. Amit and Dan and your whole team, you guys are doing a fantastic job with the podcast. And uh, congratulations to our fellows, Apu, Amrish, and Jess. Really great job presenting and discussing this case. There are so many great teaching and learning points, many of which you've already discussed. And I'll try to go through some of the highlights from my end, maybe dig in a little bit deeper and steal some of the wisdom from Dr. Eagle as we do it. I think first off, speaking about this gentleman who presented to the emergency department in retrospect, 
handful of days late from an inferior MI. I think the first point that I believe Dan hit on was trusting your spidey sense. And that's true. Kind of one of the biggest things you take away from internal medicine training and carries on through throughout your career is learning the difference between sick and not sick very quickly. And then acting on that as the team here at the University of Michigan did. We had a patient in the emergency department who was tachycardic, hypotensive, cool to touch, elevated JVP crackles, wasn't speaking in full sentences, all harbingers of something bad going on. And I think acted appropriately, got an EKG, showed inferior ST elevations, activated the STEMI pager, taken to the cath lab. Right off the bat, you look at this gentleman's vital signs and he's killed class four or in the new sky shock classification system would be stage C with A being the at-risk population and E being patients in extremis. So he's already on his way down that shock classification system. So to act quickly and try to think about your different diagnosis of what may be going on, not only diagnosing the inferior myocardial infarction, but trying to keep in mind what all the other pathophysiology that may be occurring. Dr. Eagle, anything to add? Yeah, I would just add that the um, with an inferior LMI, most of these aren't massive. So if you think about a patient in this much trouble, you really think about a mechanical problem right away. MR typically would have probably more respiratory failure and less issues with blood pressure, whereas the VSD is going to have more issues with blood pressure and a shock state, cool, fast heart rate, et cetera. So right away, you're thinking a mechanical complication and you're thinking a VSD really would fit the bill with these high jugular venous pressure waves. Yeah, I think absolutely a great point. Just keeping in mind is the, the sickness or level of hemodynamic compromise out of proportion to your initial diagnosis and then trying to think of what else may be going on I think is what ultimately led this gentleman to getting great care and good outcome at the end of it. Obviously, he gets to the cath lab coronary angiogram is done, shows an occluded mid-RCA. My colleagues, I think, did a, a really fantastic job of doing balloon angioplasty and ultimately stenting the RCA. But as the case went on, you can see that there was no real improvement. In fact, there was continued decline moving down that shock classification system from C to D and towards E, where you really need mechanical support to keep this patient going. As was discussed during the case, during the RCA intervention, a balloon pump was placed. He was intubated, put on mechanical ventilator, and strong inotropic medication like norepinephrine was started. After the PCI, they did just that, started thinking, what else could be going on here? And, and as Dr. Eagle very eloquently just described, thinking about what mechanical complications, especially in a gentleman who presented late from symptom onset, could be going on in a, in a ventricular rupture, kind of completely fits the bill. They proceeded with a right heart catheterization and noticed the severely elevated PA saturation step up from the RV to the PA, confirming the diagnosis, and then confirmed it with a, a ventricular gram as well with an LAO projection demonstrating contrast entering the RV and going up the PA, diagnostic of ventricular septal rupture. I think at this point, one of the things that I'd like to say the University of Michigan does well, but frankly, I bet most institutions around the country practicing cardiovascular medicine need to do well and do well is uh, team-based medicine. Uh, I think medicine is a team sport. And at this point, my colleague called on the team of cardiovascular specialists, including our echocardiographer to come down and do a TEE, our heart failure colleague and intensivist who was practicing the CCU at the time, and then uh, obviously very importantly, our cardiac surgeon. And they all came down. We're ha we had a discussion in real time about what's the plan for definitive repair after we made this diagnosis of ventricular septal rupture. Anything you want to add? Yeah, I think you're right, the shock war. Heart team concept is so important in acute injuries like PE. And I think more and more we've realized that you got to get all the best minds in the same room or on the same Zoom hmm. uh, to make a diagnosis and plan that everybody agrees with. And more heads are better than one when you're dealing with a critically ill patient like this. Just another thing to mention about the murmur in a patient like this 
can be very localized and very brief. So if you're not careful with walking your stethoscope from the apex to the septum and up to the base, this is actually a murmur that you can miss. So it, once again, I think the physical diagnosis is really important and we can't short shrift it at all. Yeah, absolutely fantastic point. And, and I think it was noted that a holosystolic murmur was heard consistent with the ventricular septal rupture. Going back to the team-based concept, I think you're exactly right, Dr. Eagle. In cardiovascular medicine, we're lucky in that so much of what we do is data-driven. We have large randomized trials, and this is not one of those areas. This is not one of those areas where we're probably ever going to have really large randomized data dictating how we manage this. As you all discussed in the podcast already very eloquently about the, the data that's available, it's observational data stating that patients who are a little further out five to seven days from the initial event have better surgical outcomes. Obviously, there's bias related to that. You have to survive to seven days. And so there's a survival bias, but there's also likely a pathophysiologic component to it. A surgeon has to sew into tissue that there's integrity and isn't going to just break apart as they And that was the surgeon who came down that day and, and more heads better than one. We made this decision together. Let's try to provide some temporary mechanical support and get him a couple days out so that he can go for definitive repair. The decisions about mechanical support, again, are not evidence-based in this realm, or at least with the rigor that we have in other areas. I think thinking about the pathophysiology is really important, as you all discussed already. Afterload reduction, obviously vasodilators for afterload reduction don't really work in a patient in cardiogenic shock or are advised against. But a balloon pump, mechanically reducing afterload, increasing more flow out the aortic valve and less flow from the LV to the RV, reducing the shock fraction. That makes sense. Obviously, that wasn't enough for this gentleman. And as you discussed, using the right heart cath numbers, a decision was made to have biventricular support with ECMO on top of a balloon pump to cause some afterload reduction. Important thing to remember about ECMO is the, the loading does occur in the arterial system. So ECMO actually will increase your perfusion pressure but will also increase your afterload. So it may counteract and actually increase shunting from the LV to the RV. And so there are other types of devices like LV to aortic devices, like the impella device or LA to arterial devices, like the tandem heart that can be considered. And at the end of the day, without great data to to advise what one should do, this is where the heart team, I think, plays its biggest role that everyone can talk about. What's the local expertise at the center what everyone feels comfortable with managing and caring for, and together making the best decision for that patient. And unfortunately, it worked out in this gentleman's favor. I was thinking about this case. It, it reminds me of when I was a fellow a thousand years ago, and we didn't have reperfusion therapy, believe it or not. That, that They carbon dated me last week. <laughs> and of course, we I, I remember vividly as a fellow having arguments with our cardiac surgeons, arguing that this patient's respiratory distress is getting worse their renal failure is getting worse. And they would push back and say, yes, but I can't sew into hamburger. I just can't do that. And of course, we didn't have ECMO. We didn't have the kinds of tools that we have now. So patients like this would come in fairly frequently and, and many of them did not survive. The Darwinian notion, you got to survive long enough to have your tissue be repairable uh, was something that I heard a lot from our surgeons. And it, it gets us to the next point of this case, and that's the COVID effect. And we've seen around the world a significant fall off in patients going to emergency departments with critical illness because of their fear around COVID and that they would get COVID in our emergency departments. We've seen it with heart failure. We've seen it with acute MI. We've seen it probably with aortic dissection. And so the number of cardiac deaths at home has gone up dramatically, particularly during surges in cities and towns like ours where COVID has really hit. And we're seeing things, unfortunately, like this. Uh, non-reperfused STEMIs 
that really are rare except for now. And it certainly is a call out. We all have to work with our populace and marketing and communications to try to get patients to understand we're pretty sophisticated now in preventing COVID in emergency departments. And they got to come when they feel bad. They got to come to the hospital. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I think from the cath lab standpoint, there are a handful of guidelines coming out on how to protect our healthcare workers, obviously wearing PPE, taking the appropriate precautions about patients who are suspicious of having COVID. And this, I actually remember this case very clearly. Again, it was my colleague performing it, but I was in the cath lab next door and came over. And this was right as the University of Michigan was getting its first handful of patients and Southeast Michigan had been hit and it was coming in waves and everyone was on edge and we're human. So we have fears about what's going on. We have anchor bias about could this have been COVID since we're learning a lot of information about the cardiovascular manifestations of COVID at that time. But really important is to take care of your frontline healthcare workers, protect yourself, and then take care of your patients as fully as possible. And hopefully, again, speaking to our patient population, the importance of coming in when these symptoms hit and getting expedited care is really important. I really think that this patient's story highlights some of the unique features of what we're able to do here at the University of Michigan. Our cardiovascular center is founded on the notion of deep team-based collaborative care. And this is an example of what we can do when we work together. And the more we're team-based around the country, around the world, the more chances the right patient is going to get the right therapy at the right time. And when they're critically ill, it can be life-saving like this one. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Obviously, Having gone through the cardiovascular fellowship myself, the interventional fellowship, and now on faculty, it goes without saying my actions probably speak louder than my words. I've decided to stay uh, based on how much I enjoy this place and I think for what, what it stands for, as Dr. Eagle stated. From a fellowship standpoint, there's collegiality across the board within the fellows, between fellow and faculty. It's a fellow-run hospital, so the clinical experience really hinges on the fellows, and they do fantastic work across the board. We're very lucky every year to have great fellows. And I think our clinical patient population and the breadth and diversity of exposure that you get, whether it be interventional cardiology or heart failure or EP, advanced imaging, it is fantastic and really makes for a great experience from a clinical standpoint. Historically, this case offers an interesting twist or two as well. Frank Wilson developed the 12-lead EKG here many years ago. And of course, Dr. Bob Bartlett developed ECMO here about 40 to 50 years ago. So this patient got the benefit of two major advances in care that were developed here at the University of Michigan. And I think the other thing that highlights is that we have great relationships, uh, not only within cardiology, but with our cardiac surgeons, which is so critically important, not only for this case, but for so many of the patients we care for. And then I think moving beyond the clinical exposure that we get here and makes for great, fantastic clinical fellowship training are the breadth of other experiences. I took two years of my time to do more intensive research training at the Rackham Graduate School and the Institute of Healthcare Policy and Innovation, two fantastic programs that do groundbreaking work in health services research and clinical outcomes and policy. We have fantastic basic science research opportunities, and I think all fellows are exposed to and involved in some form of research while they're fellows here. And whether that leads to a career as a researcher or not, that remains unknown. But probably most importantly, they can participate in advancing science and understanding the advancements that keep happening on a weekly basis, it feels like, in cardiovascular medicine. I think those are the things that make it a great place, other than the fact that Ann Arbor is a fantastic place to live and raise a family and all the other reasons that I've decided to stay.
I thought you were rather bold saying that the fellows run the hospital, Raj, but uh, I'll let that one go today. <laughs> well, they provide such fantastic care. Of and, course. And we always have their back. I think that's, for me, has been the most fun part is really actively engaging and participating in this team-based care for every patient. It's a great learning experience and it feels really great to provide great clinical care. And we do like our fellows to be bold. <laughs> Thanks again. Keep up the great work with the podcast. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bivin Burghese are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.